So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the first riot of the Luddites. Then on Tuesday, we unearthed the mad coincidence of the day two different Dennis the Menaces made their comic strip debuts. On Wednesday, the day the Spanish conquered the last Maya kingdom. Thursday was the day Colonel Sanders sued KFC. And on Friday, we recall how Vincent van Gogh's sister-in-law made his name. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Man fans. Ollie Man here. I'm going to keep this very brief this week because I've juggled my time terribly today. Uh, I'm still sitting here in my pyjamas, and right now I should be on a train on the way to The Guardian to record this week's Tech Weekly. Um, so, uh, hello, uh, goodbye. Uh, thanks, everyone, for spreading the word about the show on Twitter using the hashtag ModernMan. Uh, if you haven't done that yet, please, please do. It is helping more people discover us. Uh, Zoe uh, has tweeted to say, I find at the Modern Man podcast really interesting and entertaining, even though I'm a 40-year-old female Hope you don't mind. Uh, Coming up today, you will learn what accounts for 55% of profits in betting shops. You'll learn that Ollie Peart rarely reads scientific studies beyond a headline in a newspaper. Uh, And you'll learn the name for sex involving samurai swords. Let's go. On this week's Modern Man. Before I turned 18, I was actually six grand down. An education in gambling your way through university. You sound so full of terror at this prospect. And a question of premature ejaculation can't come too soon for Alex Fox. But first, Ollie Peart is here with the zeitgeist. Ollie, what is burning hotter than the sun this week? Cereal. Not as in the sugary flakes. As in the podcast. Oh, yeah. What do you know about it? It's a multi-part podcast in which uh, a case is poured over in detail on a week-by-week basis, like a serial, uh, and uh, it's uh, the most popular podcast ever made. That's right. That yeah. was expertly summarised. Well, I don't know if it was. I haven't actually listened to the first series. I didn't listen to any of them. At I heard, all? No, I heard people talking about How it. How did and you go- resist it? Oh, come on. Have you listened to it? I have listened to the first episode ever of Serial, but like, that's not because I didn't think it was amazing. I did think it was amazing. And then I, for some reason, haven't felt that tempted to listen to the rest of it. But I know that makes me unusual. You know, like when everyone's into a band and then you're not, they're not your favourite band anymore. Well, I'm like this. I'm like, if, if, say, like Breaking Bad, for example, yeah. I was like behind the curve with that kind of stuff. Yeah, so that that was amazing, right? Yeah, but I couldn't be no, bothered. But it, Breaking Bad is amazing. I haven't watched it all because I couldn't be bothered. But that's like with you with Serial. I couldn't be bothered to go back and catch up because I'd be like, hey, guys, did you watch that? And they were like, yeah, we watched it like a year ago. So it's the opposite reason. You want to be part of the trend. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Of course, because you're Mr. Trend. I've listened to the first one in the new series today on the way here. Uh You're saying this like you've had some sneak preview, like 10 million people around the world aren't all doing the same thing. No, it was released on the 10th of December. But whatever, Uh it's really good. Yes, there we go. It's good, isn't it? It's exceptionally good. In fact, yeah, go and listen to it now. It's good. Do you want to know what it's about? (laughs) What, the new series? Yeah. Is it not another murder mystery thing? Have you heard of Bo Bergdahl? Basically, he just ran off, went AWOL, and everyone was like, oh my God, where is he? And then he was discovered five years later. The Taliban handed him over for the release of five Guantanamo Bay people. It was that guy. And it's his story. So it's about why he did it. And it's fascinating. And it finishes at the end. It's not a spoiler, but the end it goes, and next week we're going to be talking to the Taliban. (laughs) I don't know how you can talk to the Taliban. I didn't realise there was a direct line there. But it's a fascinating insight. They've got a very persistent press officer. (laughs) He's very good. (laughs) Calling him up, he's like, hello, Taliban. (laughs) 
I'm like, hi, I got your latest press release, yes. but you forgot to attach the video. Yes. Like, oh, I got caught up in your filter. Let me resend. <laughs> Do you think they actually have a press officer? They have video directors, don't they? Yeah, yeah. and ISIS. Got, yeah. like, social media managers. Yeah, exactly, yeah. a load of blokes sat around on Twitter going, well, do, you, do you think this image is all right? Do you reckon people get a message? I think if you're prepared to fight to the death for the founding of an Islamic caliphate, you probably don't see yourself as a social media consultant. You, you see what you're doing as something that is aiding the effort. Anyway, so that's Serial. Go and listen to it. Talking of gripping works, some feedback from last week. Cool. I just remembered. And I should have come in with the names of all the people that tweeted me. Sorry, dudes. Oh no. oh, no. No, no, it's good. Is it? Loads of people tweeted me with the name of the Bill Murray film with the elephant in it. Oh, go on. It's called Larger Than Life. <laughs> so there you go. I'm going to watch it. I actually, uh, now seems a good time as well to, um, I need to apologise. Oh. For last week. What did you, What? I said that uh, Michael Cera was in Superman versus Batman. Yeah, and I said he'll be bringing uh, hipster slacktivism to the role. Yes, yeah, it's, uh, <coughs> it's Jesse Eisenberg. What? what? <laughs> you got your they nerdy look Jews so mixed like up. Ollie, they I look can't so believe alike. it. This is Lenny, Henry, and Ainsley Harriet <laughs> no, all over again. No, imagine. Oh, right, imagine God. if I'd actually done that. I'm start calling me a... Seth Rogen next. So I'm, I apologise for that. Oh, it's a big mistake. But they do look quite similar. Yeah. All all us nerdy Jews do kind of look the same. Anyway, I'm distressed because you are my source for movie news at the moment. Yeah. I didn't double check it. I thought you'd done your research. Well, it brings me on to the next trend, actually. Oh, yeah. It is more movie news. Oh, okay. The BFG. I'm so excited. I just got an erection when you said that. That's disgusting. I'm, it- to me, this is my Star Wars. So, yes, this is a Disney production directed by Steven Spielberg, yep. scored by John Williams. That's right. Based on the Roald Dahl book. That's it. With, with that going on, it should be an instant classic. So, have you seen the trailer? Yes. What did you think? Honestly. Yeah, go on. I felt that they'd almost tried too hard for that opening sequence to feel like an instant classic. I mean, they can't win, but I felt the way it was being scored, the way it was being presented to me, felt like I'd seen it before and I didn't want that. I sort of wish it wasn't Disney. I mean, I'm a massive Disney fan. Yeah. But from a grown-up's point of view, when you go to see films made by Disney, they're a bit too saccharine sometimes, and I I don't want the BFG to be overly saccharine. Mm. And Spielberg has a tendency in that direction as well. Like dull books, the whole point is that they're kind of ugly and they're about how you can't trust adults because really they're all part of a conspiracy to kill children. <laughs> and if they <laughs> soften that, it's a bit of a shame. But they're also, I don't know if you knew this, but they're also remaking The Jungle Book. I didn't know that. Yeah. So what, that as a comes, cartoon? Uh, no, it's, it's entirely CGI. And The Jungle Book, uh, because you can't have a human child riding around on the back of a bear, mm. uh, the, the entire thing's done in this sort of like semi-weird, realistic CGI. So it's, it, oh, no, it, like that weird Tom Hanks one. Like the weird Tom Hanks one. Yeah, so, that's Which odd. I hate, yeah, and I've seen it, odd. and it's really eerie and creepy. It and looks then, like a sort of posh version of a cheap nursery rhymes video on YouTube for kids, doesn't it? Like a cheap uh, computer animation that yeah, someone's put money into. It's, it's awful, that. Yeah. Uh, what was it called? Or the something? Polar Express. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. Hated that. Hated that. But, but I think it's going to have a similar feel. I watch, watch the trailer for that. That is, that is weird. The snake at the end is quite, like, creepy. It's like... And it's... I don't know. I think they're going to ruin that one. Are we part of a generation of men, and, and I think the answer to this is yes, who are so infantilised that we pretend that these things for kids are actually for us when they're not? I mean, the thing is, you know, oh, I'm really concerned about the BFG. Well, it's for seven-year-olds, so get over it. I mean, I do sort of think, <laughs> in a way, we should be... What we should be doing right now is talk about the new Almodovar film. Do you know what I mean? We should be like, oh, next year there's going to be a brilliant piece of German expressionist cinema. But instead, we're talking about films for kids as if they're for us and then saying that it's dashing our expectations. On the one hand, I am a Disney nut. On the other hand, I think, fucking grow up, get a pair of boxer shorts without Mickey Mouse on them and stop talking about children's films like it's literature. Yeah, but sometimes it's nice not to grow up, isn't it, Ollie? Can't deny it. 
What's what's your next trend? My next trend is full stops in text messages. Right. So there's been a scientific study. I know you have a go at me for reading scientific studies because you're like, oh, you've been roped into a load of Oh, science. Like, <laughs> what a waste of time. <laughs> fucking waste of time reading up on science. I don't. I, I have... No, but you always think that they're I like bullshit. I object to the ones you choose, yeah, because yeah, they are. They're like, yeah, because faux, Well, before you even tell me whatever you're about to tell faux me. Faux research. Someone has wasted, in my view, money that's gone into providing academic institutions with a buffer to research into punctuation in, in text messages. Yeah, yeah, that's essentially what's happened. But well, that, the thing is, I mean, that's not like when, you know, people research into how much milk can a shredded wheat absorb. At least with <laughs> punctuation, like linguistics is a scientific form, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's communication. Yeah. So, you know, we communicate in a completely different way now in the 21st century with mobile phones and that yeah. kind of stuff. But the research suggests that if you use, if you use full stops in your text messaging mm-hmm. or WhatsApps or whatever, and you sort of, you know, answer back, yes, full stop, bleh, full stop, you're a heartless bastard. Explain the correlation. It's, it's the abruptness of it. So because you're dependent on text to communicate, there's been loads of different things that have kind of spawned up as a result of that. Emojis, writing words that are, are like sounds like moi. Because you can't read a text message and sort of necessarily appreciate the tone. Whereas with a full stop, a full stop is very abrupt. You're pretty much saying, that's what I say. And that's it. And you, it just means that you're a bit of a bit of a knobhead. How have they scientifically I'd... proven these people are knobheads? It doesn't sound very scientific to me. Well, it's... Scientific enough. You're asking me for some details in the research, aren't you? It was just this lady said, who was leading the the study, she said, after their results, they deemed that using full stops uh, means you're a bit of a heartless bastard. And it bastard. And if you. I'll tell you my response to this, Ollie, briefly. Go on. Sad face, steam out of ears, (laughs) steaming pile of shit. (laughs) There you go. Stick that in your mobile phone. What else have you got, Ollie, in your bag of treats and trends? The average age of a cyber attacker has dropped seven years in 12 months, from 24 to 17. Wow. Isn't that's, that weird? That that's, is amazing. Yeah. What that statistic actually means is computer literacy has, in the last year, dropped almost a decade. Probably five years ago, a 10-year-old would know how to use a computer. It would now be a two-year-old. I think that's exactly what it is. And these kids, they, they look for this kudos for, for hacking into a big site. And yeah. one of the youngest cases is a kid who's 12 years old who got hold of this... Uh, virus that allowed him to control computers elsewhere and this kind of stuff 12 years old mm. i mean i was trying to learn how to kickflip at 12 years old and i couldn't do it and, and look how it's paid off <laughs> yes exactly the thing is though it's not necessarily a bad thing it's always presented because obviously hacking into banks or you know creating anarchy by um, you know destroying the government from within is not something that people generally recommend but mm. uh, if you use those skills if you harness the excitement of being able to hack when you're 10 or 11, you could end up getting a job for MI6 or something, or you could end up working in protection for one of these big banks. It could be quite good. It's not, it's not a bad thing that children are interested in how to program computers and how to deconstruct them. Yeah, but you wouldn't like sort of say to a kid that goes in and does an armed robbery in a place and gets away with all that kind of stuff mm. that he could be an undercover detective. Well, it's kind of, you well you perhaps sh- you should, Mr. Gove. Perhaps yeah, you should. Yeah, possibly. Because that's what they're expressing, isn't it? Creative ingenuity. I and mean, we all admire that in Ocean's Eleven, don't we? Put <laughs> yeah. a tuxedo on, suddenly you're an artist. I don't uh, think so. Well done stealing that those millions of dollars and knocking out loads of people yeah. that have families. And that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, but you, it, it is about directing their, their talents to the right area, isn't it? Because you're right. I think if you have that kind of skill set, how amazing would it be to apply it to something that does some good? But it's giving them the opportunity to do that, which they're not getting, clearly. So they're sat in their rooms masturbating and breaking into sort of, you know, important websites and bringing them down. Well, if anything, I think this podcast provides a platform for you to uh, express your skills, uh, or at least 
an alternative to masturbating. Mm. Uh, if people have got a trend that they'd like you to talk about next week, Ollie, what should they do with it? They should tweet me. Yeah. You can use exclamation marks and emojis. It's Ollie at O-L-L-I-E-E-P. Have you bought your Christmas presents yet? If you're as organised as me, then no. Uh, So if you are spending today cruising the web for pointless tat to foist upon your relatives, please remember to gift us a drink as well. The average cost of a pint of beer in Britain is £3.31, about five US dollars. Come on, you're spending twice that on those novelty socks for your cousin, who you hate. Our beer donors this week are Andy, Peter and Gosling, BJ, Dan, Nick, Lisa, Victoria, Mike, Sabrina, Murray, Dave, Jonathan, Matt, Mark, Cheryl, Julian and Graham. Thank you guys for making our Christmas. We want your support too. Visit modernman.co.uk and click beer money. Gambling can seem glamorous. Think James Bond in Casino Royale, Frank Sinatra... Tipping Point with Ben Shepherd, But gambling addiction, that's really not cool. When I think of gambling addicts, I think of sweaty, greasy middle-aged men, and it is almost always men. Uh, but my guest today, Matt Zarb cousin, was a gambling addict, but it wasn't out of desperation, it was for the endorphins. And he wasn't an older guy who should know better with money to spend. He got hooked at a very early age. My first bet was just before I turned 16 uh, in a local betting shop, a local Ladbrokes, and it was Armory 1-0, which was, I think, 25-1. to 1, And I put a few quid on that. Uh, they were playing Man United. And then I saw the machines in there as well, the fixed-odds betting terminals, and I went and put a few pounds in there. If I say if I, I think I put three or four quid in, and I got it up to £10. And I was pretty exasperated or taken in by how quick the game was so you can have a a new game every 20 seconds I withdrew the money withdrew the ticket got the money over the counter and I was like wow that was easy and I won uh, 700 pounds like within three weeks hold hold on you've just made a massive jump there from a tenner out of three quid to 700 pounds yeah so how many times did you go back to that machine I'd say at least twice maybe three three or four times a week actually actually I think I I used to get off the bus on the way home from school and I, I went to a sixth form which was a grammar school and a, uh, had a school uniform and I used to go in in my school uniform so they were pretty lax back then we're talking like 2006 and I yeah I think actually was that was that not legal what's the age you're supposed to be 18 especially 18 yeah right. I went in most most days sometimes in my school lunch break after about three or four weeks I went in on a Saturday and I had a few hundred pounds that I'd sort of won previously. I felt invincible. Whereas before, when I first started, I was gambling one pounds a spin, two pounds a spin on red or black. This time I was like covering the board like I was some sort of pro. There's no such thing with roulette. You're always going to lose in the long run. Like covering all the board, covering all the numbers, picking the numbers, like thinking I had a strategy like, like an idiot. I was betting 20, 30 pounds a spin. Once you break barrier of of what is affordable to you it's very difficult to then go back i'll give you an example in lower sixth i did my as levels and i got abb which isn't bad and i then applied to university and i really wanted to go to ucl Mm -hmm. because i like london and i put birmingham as my second choice and i was like oh well whatever you know i'm going to go to ucl 
I, I applied, I got an offer at UCL, ABB, did an interview and everything, and I really wanted to study there. What were you going to study? Uh, anthropology. And I stuck anthropology and politics down at Birmingham. I then said to my parents, I don't want to go to university anymore. And they said, why? And I said, because I just want to get a job. And in my head, the reason I wanted to get a job was because I wanted money so I could gamble. Specifically on those machines? On those machines. What was it about those machines that appealed to you when the majority of people walk past them and don't notice them or perhaps use them once and then walk away? What was it that was making you feel so compelled to use them again and again? I I couldn't tell you exactly why. The speed of play, the staking capacity. Roulette is an addictive game anyway. As a game, it's, it's incredibly compelling, refined over centuries. You know, Dostoevsky got addicted to roulette. You know, it's what the gambler's about. It's actually a, uh, a personal account. You know, you're taking that game, which we've always said, okay, casinos can have it. If you, if you really want to play roulette, you've got to go to a casino. You've got to go out your way to a casino. And we're going to make, have a 24-hour cooling-off period and, you know, all this sort of stuff, all of these barriers to entry. And they've taken that game and they've put it in a high street betting shop, which is incredibly accessible. Obviously, there was no age verification when I went in. Made it five times faster and allowed you to bet up to £100 a spin. And I think that that's it, really. That, it's an addictive product. All my friends used to play poker. And I sit there, you know, they'd be betting like £1, £2 a hand or something. I'd be like, oh, you know, all in every time. I couldn't take any other form of gambling seriously because it wasn't giving me the big wins that I craved. And when you're that kind of age, you don't actually have that much access to credit, do you? Because banks do check how old you are. So were you just putting back in and losing a lot of the money that you'd won? Or were you finding money from other places to put in? So I actually went through my old bank statements recently. And I looked at successive withdrawals. So what I used to to do is I used to go in, say, oh, I'll just do this 20 quid in my wallet and then I'll go home. Yeah, I mean, yeah, right, that's never going to happen. So I'll lose the 20 and then I'll go to the cash point, make a withdrawal, go to the cash point, make a withdrawal. And I looked at my bank statement to sense those sorts of patterns, which I knew would have meant I was gambling. And before I turned 18, I I was actually six grand down. And that was money that I I had um, made working part-time I used to work for PowerGen uh, was a customer service advisor and I was actually on pretty good money for a 16 year old I was on like £8.20 an hour which in 2006 wasn't bad but that was your money for your evenings out that was your money to help you through university yes and you put it all into the machines machines there was one time where I was sitting in an English lesson with next to one of my friends and I was just drawing out like roulette wheel and the roulette board and like putting <laughs> putting chips on where I was going to gamble. Mm. I was obsessed with it. I mean, there, there are two sort of comparisons that spring to mind hearing you talk about being a young man who is addicted to this product, and that's drugs and pornography. Those are the other two things the young men talk about. Yeah. Having that feeling all the time. Would you say the allure is that strong? Similarly, you just felt like constantly, if you weren't doing it, you felt it was something you should be doing. That's absolutely right. It's a great comparison. And, and that's backed up by research that neurologically, the patterns in your brain are the same when you're gambling as when you're taking cocaine. Did you go to university? I ended up going to Birmingham uh, because I ended up getting BCC. So I went down a grade in everything. Um, Do you think your grade suffered because of this gambling? Oh, unquestionably. If, if one spends all of their time in a betting shop, all of their spare time, then 
obviously they're not revising or doing what they're supposed to be doing. What were your parents saying at this point then? My, my family knew I gambled. They knew I gambled a lot. They weren't really aware of how to deal with what was looking like a gambling addict. Did you use that phrase, gambling addict? Yeah, I did, yeah. I had a gambling problem. You'd have said that when you were 17 if I'd have met you? Yeah, I, I would have said it when I was 17 or 18, yeah. Certainly when I was 18. Were you I, saying it to the bookies? No. See, this is the thing. Like, This is what I don't get, because when I went into the bookies, everyone in there had a gambling problem. That's why they were in the bookies <laughs> at 2 o'clock, right? Yeah. No one goes in the bookies and spends their day in there unless, unless they've got a gambling problem. That's true. And, and, and all the guys that used to play the machines... They all had a gambling problem. And there was all the guys who used to bet on the racing. They were able to stay more, stay more in control or, or you know, manage their uh, gambling a lot, a lot more easier than the guys who went on the machine. They could pick the races. They could wait. You know, it was more strategic for them. It was punter against bookmaker. Mm-hmm. They felt like they could get an edge on the bookmaker. No one can get an edge on roulette. The house has an edge. Over time, all those racing punters, they started to disappear one by one because they started to get sucked into the machines. And pretty soon, I'd go into the, my local betting shop and there wouldn't be anyone in there. It'd just be the people playing the machines. They'd come in, lose more than they could afford usually, and then leave. And that's a shame. That's what the betting shops used to be. They used to, when I first started going in, I used to sit on the machine, I used to hear all the banter behind me, and it was quite good. You know, it was quite a good environment, good atmosphere. And betting shops aren't like that anymore. They want to be a high street retail. So people come in, do their money and leave. They don't want to be these community environments. They're not even taking bets over the counter anymore. You know, if you're a shrewd punter who knows about racing, you can't get your money on. They'll, they'll identify you and they'll say you're restricted. It's a real tragedy, really, that the betting industry has moved towards this product, which is uh, just a gaming product, really. It's not what bookmaking's about. So your family didn't know what to say to you, but what did they actually say? My, I remember my mum, I said, I told her, I said, said, where's that money that you earned last month? Like, cause I used to go from school to my job, uh, do 16 or 20 hours a week after school, which was obviously, that was a big commitment as well. I said, where's your, where's your money? Why? You know, I said, oh, I said, if I asked her to borrow some money or something, oh, I said, where's your money? You've, you've been working all month last month. And I said, oh, I lost it down the bookies. She said, oh, it's not good enough, is it? You know, you you've obviously got a problem with these machines. You should stay out of the, stay out of the betting shops. This, you know, it's your future. You're... All the things a mum should say, you know, it's, you're, you're, you're going to ruin your life. You know, but you can't make someone do something unless you, like, put me under house arrest. There was no way that she was going to, like, stop me going into the betting shop. I would have found a way. I remember once she actually came into the betting shop. I'd lied to her. I'd said, oh, I'm going for a haircut or something. And she, she saw straight through it and came to the betting shop and... I said, what are you doing in here? I said, well, what does it look like? And obviously I was quite embarrassed because I'd lied to her. And that went on quite a lot. Like I used to lie to my friends. If I was late, I'd say, oh, something happened. You know, my car broke down or something stupid. And so you end up lying to, because to, you know, you know that it's a problem, but you don't want everyone else to know. Okay. So you went to Birmingham, did you? I went to Birmingham, a gambling addict. Having I, lost how much at this point? Everything you've earned, which is what? 10 grand, something like that. Just under, yeah. There was a betting shop on the way to just outside campus. I was there most days. And obviously you get your student loan in, you get overdrafts, and you get all of this Suddenly you're capital. a grown-up, money. And I'm thinking, wow, yeah, I can gamble. Did you, uh, how much time did you spend gambling versus time you spent studying for your degree, would you say? 
I'd say I was spending 80% of my time gambling. I'd missed a lot of lectures as well. So I'd get off the bus. So my where my halls were was quite far away from the, the campus. So I would get off the bus and then intend to walk to the lecture and then find myself in William Hill in front of the sh- um, machine. I mean, you're looking at me despairing. No, but I'm that, not. That, no, no, no. I'll tell, no, I'll tell you that. what I'm thinking. <laughs> what I'm specifically thinking is the person sitting before me is a very amenable bloke. Therefore, I imagine you made friends, even in that 20% of time that you weren't in the gambling shop. I'm wondering what they thought of it and what they said to you about it and what you said to them. If I just uh, met someone at university, I'm a fresher, and they say I spend 80% of my time in William Hill. I, well, think, I think I talked to them about it. A lot of my friends went to Birmingham from my sixth form, none, none of whom really gambled much. They were aware, but what can you say? It's a bit awkward, isn't it? If I had a mate who was a drug addict and he was like, can you like get some drugs for me? I mean, <laughs> aside from obviously the legal the, the legal ramifications of that. Or if I had a mate who was an alcoholic who said, can you go and get me some beers? I'd say, well, no, you're an alcoholic. Let, let's go to AA. You know, I'd know what to do go and see a GP or something it's sort of accepted accepted that people are alcoholics people are drug addicts therefore you can be more explicit about the fact that they've got an addiction addiction with gambling there's there's still a stigma it's still like oh he's got a gambling problem he must be he must have something wrong with him so my friends you know they didn't really know what to what to say there was one case where they were doing a whip round for a, a football bet and I, and I said, um, oh, I'll, I'll stick a fiver in. And one of them, bless him, said, no, you've got a gambling problem. And at the time, I was like, felt one of the ground to swallow me up. <laughs> felt embarrassed and shame, ashamed. But he was just trying to look out for me, you know. Yeah. And, that, and, and he knew. But what can you do, you know? Uh, if, if I told them the extent of it, uh, it wouldn't have made anything any better. So how long think. did it go on for this then? So from when I went into the betting shop on my own the first time, it would have been four years I got through my student loans, three different overdraft facilities, all the money that my parents were giving me on, you know, to, to support me while I was at university, which was very kind of them, was, was gambled away. If Wonga and Payday loans were around then, then I'm sure they would have got a call from me as well. I put the total losses at about 16,000, maybe as high as 20 if you include like winnings. And I went through. I, I did used. To, I used to say sixteen. But I went when I went through my bank statements. I was like, actually, I lost like more than six grand before I even turned eighteen. So it's probably more than that. And, and that's, all of that money was was put into this machine in the form of twenty pound notes. It's not like you put your credit card in and say take a thousand pounds. This is a lot of manual feeding in of paper cash. Isn't yes, it? there was one story where I went to the bookies on the way to a lecture. So I was aware I had a problem and what I did was I tried to put some safeguards in place to protect me from losing all my money. So I set up two bank accounts, uh, one of which I used to drip drip from the other one, so drip direct debits into from the other one. I cut the card of that second second bank account which had all my student loans in and everything like that like all, and the overdraft facility and all that sort of stuff. So I thought, right, I just gave myself like a budget of like 150, 100 pounds a week or something, like maximum, absolute maximum, which is still a lot to live on. And I ended up going to the bookies, losing my week's budget, whatever it was, going to the bank branch on campus with my ID, 
and saying to the lady behind the counter, can I have two and a half thousand pounds, please? <laughs> and she filled an envelope with two and a half thousand pounds, no questions asked. Went back to the bookies, just chasing that initial hundred. I was slamming down wads of money on the counter saying, can you load that onto machine two or whatever it was? Hundred pound a spin. Got totally, totally out of control. I said immediately then, can you self-exclude me so you can actually ban yourself from the betting shop if you give them a passport photo and fill in a form? Obviously, it relies on staff recognising you. So, as soon as my next... problem in that branch, I imagine. Which shouldn't have been, no. But due to the high turnover of staff, uh, I went after... That was towards the end of term. I came back the next term and I was able to go in again. After that incident where I lost £2,500 in one afternoon, I had realised that I had lost quite a significant amount and um, had no access to any money, any credit. I borrowed a lot of money from my friends as well. My parents weren't aware of the extent of it. I, re- I was feeling really, really suicidal at that point. And when That I, was the obvious way for you to end this, was it? You were just thinking, there's no way I can actually live because as soon as I get any money, I'm going to spend it and then I'm going to lose it. Yeah, so when you're gambling, it's a self-medication. But what you're self-medicating against, or for, sorry, is what the gambling has created the problems the gambling has created in your life it's your escape like any addiction it's like escape escape an escape from the problems that the addiction is causing itself so it's a, it's a vicious circle and once i couldn't gamble anymore i just had a uh, a moment of self-awareness and everything came to a head and i, I just thought wow uh, i have to actually come to terms with the situation i've put myself in i'm not obviously where i wanted to be in london you know or I haven't taken my studying seriously. I haven't taken like anything in my life very seriously. I've just been gambling the whole time. And where has it got me? Well, I'm thousands of pounds in debt. All I do is think about gambling. And and I, I, I faced up to it, and and I, I just felt like I couldn't really go on anymore. It was quite quite a tough time. And I think if my parents didn't intervene, I, I wanted to kill myself, and I made them aware of that. What was the form of the intervention? I wanted to uh, jump from a building and they were sort of made aware of that and they drove up to Birmingham from Essex and uh, sort of talked me out of it on the way. Anything could have happened at that moment. And phenomenally stressful for them, obviously. Yeah, I put them through hell. I put them through absolute hell and I feel terrible about it. Uh, but obviously just as well you told them at that moment. Yeah. I mean, you obviously didn't really want to do it it was the classic cry for help thing right you you wanted them to come and stop you you just didn't have the ability to stop yourself yeah definitely and i think if they if they didn't intervene if they didn't say oh um you got to have therapy and, and they, they put me through that that was great uh cognitive behavioral therapy i recommend it for anyone who's got an addiction then i might have done that or tried to like, turn to crime or something or just find, found a way of getting money paying off some of the debts and, and gambling again. How just, long did it take before you would say you were better? I mean, yeah, I better a is a difficult word as well. Because yeah, that's a really good question. So <laughs> so that was year one, and the crossover into year two, it took me another six months to stop from them after getting treatment. So I, I stopped on the day of my 
20th birthday, which was February the 2nd, uh, 2010. And I haven't gambled since then. So what you do do now is you're a professional campaigner uh, in this arena. And what you're campaigning about specifically are these fixed odds betting terminals, these machines that you got addicted to. That's right. I mean, briefly, what is it you would like to see implemented because you're obviously in your heart you'd rather they were expunged from the earth completely they didn't (laughs) exist but you have to deal with the reality that some people enjoy them that they're supporting people's jobs on the high street yeah what's the regulation that you think is sensible that there isn't i think that gambling should be fun it should be a leisure activity and therefore there's no reason why bookies should have machines where you can bet up to 100 pounds every spin it should be capped at two pounds like it is in pubs bingo halls arcades everywhere else that's easily accessible Easily accessible uh, uh, gambling venues have, have all got these machines that are capped at two pound a spin. So the bookies, the bookies got these machines illegally in the first place. They should never have been allowed gaming to offer roulette. They they claim that the server was off-site that determined the result. So therefore, people betting on these machines were actually it's the same as betting on a horse race. That's why they called them fixed odds betting terminals. Everyone knows the gaming machines, and it, they exploited a loophole in the law to 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 be able to offer them. So we just say they can have machines, but £2 a spin. And on the point of them supporting jobs, I mean, the number of jobs in the betting industry is on in terminal decline because you don't need as many staff. These machines account for 55% of the profits in betting shops now. And you don't need as many staff to take bets. So shop, shops can be single-manned. So, I, I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that they support many jobs anymore. Is it as relevant as a campaign uh, as it might have been four or five years ago now that we're in a world where young men and it is mostly men we're talking about all have smartphones in their pockets with access to apps that do this without even having to leave their bedrooms yes uh, i think obviously mobile's increased hugely uh, this year three, gone up 300 percent in terms of gross gambling yield obviously that will plateau at some point i don't i don't see the growth of mobile as an argument to not regulate high street betting shops i see it as an argument to regulate mobile the way the way these betting shops are, this disproportionate amount in, in deprived areas. It goes they go for the cash demographic. They go for the C two D E demographic, and it's guys who you know work cash in hand or low paid or unemployed people tend to go to betting shops. The most vulnerable demographic. Some of, some of whom don't even have smartphones. So I think that's the biggest problem. And what is the answer you said earlier when you were younger? you knew you had a problem, your friends knew you had a problem, but you don't know what to say to a gambling addict. If there's people who are listening who are in that exact position, what do you say to your friend who's a gambling addict? You talked about CBT. What else can they do? If your friend's a gambling addict, then tell their family. Make everyone aware of it. Be as compassionate as you can and say, it's not just your fault because ultimately no one chooses to be addicted. Everyone would like to gamble responsibly. There's no point telling people to do that. They want to do that anyway. Be as compassionate as you can and encourage them to seek help. And if you can take control of their finances, do that as well. I do that for a few people. I I try and help people as much as I can by constantly talking to them and and texting them. And if they feel like they, they, they need to gamble, then just trying to talk them out of it. And it's difficult. It's a long road. But if you get referred by your GP for cognitive behavioral therapy, you can... The waiting list is quite long, but you, you know that that does make a difference. Lots of addicts, some of whom are my friends, come to me and say, uh, "How do I stop?" And the one thing I always tell them, which seems to resonate, is, "If you lose, you're going to chase it. If you win, what are you going to do with the money?" 
go back to the bookies the next day, right? So what's the point? It's a cycle. It's just a ridiculous, pointless cycle. And that's what I was in. If you've been affected by the issues raised in that interview, please, please do talk to someone about it. There is always someone at Samaritans.org. Uh, And if you agree with Matt, as I now definitely do, that it is time for the British government to regulate fixed odds betting terminals so they're limited to £2 a spin, visit his campaign website at stopthefobts.org. That's stopthefobts.org. Uh, before we find out what your challenge is for next month, let's pause to thank our sponsors for the Zeitgeist this month, BBC Maestro. Yes, BBC Maestro is a subscription-based streaming platform. It's got loads of amazing online courses that you can take part in, which are taught by some really incredible names. Yeah, like Alan Moore, Julia Donaldson. It's an incredible repository of online video lessons from people who really know what they're talking about. Um, I'm really excited because Bill Lawrence is on there. Do you know who that is? I don't. Should I know this? He's a, well, no, it's a geeky thing to know who he is, but okay. he's, a, he's a comedy writer. Mm. And he's done an online course for BBC Maestro in writing comedy for television. He's the guy behind Scrubs and Ted Lasso. The thing about these courses is they're long. Like, he's, it's not just guy talks to camera for half an hour and shares some tips that you'd get if you went to go and see them speaking at any literary event. He has done a bespoke 21-lesson, four-and-a-half-hour course on how to write comedy for TV, how to pitch, how to work with actors, how to find your voice. I mean, they're proper deep dives. The one that really stood out for me, though, is... Um Brian Cox teaching acting. And mm. I, I don't think I've ever said this to you, Ollie. But I remind you of Brian Cox? You, you're... I do have that steely determination. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Let's say yeah. But I have always wanted to learn how to act properly. I don't necessarily want to be an actor, but I just quite like the idea of um, knowing how to act. And the thing about Brian Cox is, I mean, what a name to be teaching you something like yeah. acting. Well, there'd be transferable skills, wouldn't there? Even if you have no intention of being an actor, you know, the, the things that he's going to be talking about in that course, how to work with other actors, how to interpret your character, how to learn your lines, all of that stuff might be relevant for whatever you do for a job. Yeah, I was thinking more of explaining to my other half that I did put the clothes away. She just thinks that I didn't, but then I could act the way that I did. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, maybe you will make that pivot, Ollie. You know, there's there's always roles for the back half of the calf in uh, Jack and the Beanstalk. He's saying I'd be <laughs> a literal ass. Anyway, uh, if this appeals to you as it should, then use the code MAN to get 40% off your favourite video course or 40% off a subscription at bbcmaestro.com. Yes, go to bbcmaestro.com and use the code M-A-N-N to get your 40% off your favourite video course or 40% off a subscription, which gives you access to every single BBC Maestro course. Let the greatest be your teacher with BBC Maestro. Well, I don't know about you, but I feel like it's time for a trip down the foxhole, which is just as well, because look who it is. It's Alex Fox. Hello, Ollie man. How are you doing, superhuman? I'm all right, thank you, although I'm slightly troubled by the concept. You've said you want to talk about sex furniture. Yes, I have been looking into furniture. That's furniture for fornication this week. Uh, Is that that furniture you have sex on or furniture you have sex with? Mostly furniture you have sex 
on, although it's pieces of furniture designed to enhance your sexual experience somehow. So, for example... Um, I mean, isn't that all furniture? All furniture is designed potentially to have sex on, isn't it? I mean, but apart it's not from specifically designed for that purpose. There's furniture out there and, and bedroom accessories that are designed with particularly to make sex better. So we're talking things like um, foam ramps that allow you to get into sexual positions more easily and hold them for a longer period of time. And um, Foam? Fo- yeah. Like, Do you put sheets on top? I'm just thinking no, about the clean No, they come with fabric, fabric covers that Glad you can pop in the washing machine. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Feel nice and plush I was going to well. say, because foam absorbs moisture, doesn't it? The covers on these foam wedges and ramps are waterproof. Great. What else? Uh, I've been introduced to something called the Love Sense Mirror, which is it's a round mirror that's red on one side and traditional silver on the other. And it affixes on the ceiling over your bed on this kind of tripod fixture um, that means that you can angle it to see yourself in the most flattering and revealing position. But it's got like the a most little... flattering position for me to see myself would be uh, if it was from a long red. way away. Uh, down, yeah, and up at the ceiling. Do you like the idea of watching yourself on a mirror whilst you're at it? I kind of do. I think I'd like the idea of watching my partner. I think I'd really get off on that. I've I've used mirrors before and it is it's it was a lot sexier than I imagined it would be. This mirror as well comes down from the ceiling really quickly as well. So it's not like when your neighbours come round or you've got dinner party guests or whatever, they step in, they do a little tour of your house and they can see that you've got a mirrored ceiling, like in a rap video or something or a sex hotel. Maybe a different piece of uh, sex furniture would suit you better, Ollie. Perhaps you would be interested in the love arc. Go on. <laughs> you sound so full of terror at this prospect. The love arc is a—it's uh, it's a piece of curved aluminium with a pair of handles at either end, and it's designed so that you attach a dildo to it using a suction cup. Now, hold on—that is a piece of furniture you are having sex with. Yes, yes. In yeah. this case, you are, and you can either use it a bit like a rocking horse and rock your toy in and out of your orifice, or you can kind of flip it over so it's resting on the handles as though it's a little bridge and ride it huh. like you're a, a jockey on a dildo. Parents have got a massage chair in the centre of our living room at home. Does it have a big, veiny, throbbing willy attached to it? Not when I visit for tea, but I, you know, I've sometimes wondered, do you suffer from back pain or is this sex furniture? Now I've got a phrase for it. Uh, let's move on to our question of sex for the week. It's from someone who's chosen to remain anonymous. They say, Alex, my partner of seven years works away during weekdays and lives somewhere else five nights a week. Since we no longer live together, I found that our lovemaking has gotten shorter before I climax and it's all over. I put this down to us having less sex, so when it finally happens, it's all very sensitive and eager down there. Being the kind of generous lover that I am, I always make sure she's seen to before I am. But my question is, how can I train myself whilst alone so I may prolong my excitement and we can both come together? So this isn't actually necessarily a question about premature ejaculation, is it? Because it's someone who's saying that they don't necessarily have that issue on an ongoing basis. It, it appears to be an issue simply because they're not having as much sex as they used to and he's So it's he's overwhelming very yeah. when they do have sex, yeah. So yeah. Is, it, is it too simple to, to say, well... Masturbate shortly before you see each other? 
Well, that that would be one simple solution. But then again, I think training yourself to be able to last longer at any opportunity can be a good thing for lots of guys. And uh, I think that's a good suggestion from our email pal here. Okay. You're you're going to talk keggles now. That's what people say, isn't it? Men can do keggles, yeah. This is the thing, isn't it, where you sort of... Yeah, yeah. The the muscle you use to wee. Yes, you you clench it. Yeah. And you're supposed Um, to do that whilst you're at work, whilst you're on the train, and then it'll turn you into some sort of sexual... Hercules. They're more aimed at women, to yeah. be honest, Kegel exercises, because they can help you make your orgasm stronger. But they can also be beneficial for men, absolutely, in giving you greater uh, control over your groinal area. But I think our friend might be better off training with either during his masturbation or, or maybe even purchasing. There's a new device on the market called a Bluet. How do you spell that? B-L-E-W-I-T. Okay. As in, shit, I blew it. Yep. I came too early. Yeah. I see. But right. it's also, it's a little bit like a flashlight or um, an oral sex uh-huh. simulator. It's like a, it's a pale blue sort of twisted octagon shape that is a masturbator, so you stick your willy in it. Yeah. And how um, does that help train the time that you come? Well, it has a little cap on the end that means you can adjust how hard the suction and pressure is inside it. Yes, because on those male masturbators, you've got a lot of pressure, haven't you, basically? I imagine if you've suffered from that... I'm using the word suffer. It reminds me of that old Dr. Doctor joke. Do you remember that? (laughs) Dr. Doctor, my wife says I suffer with premature ejaculation, but actually I enjoy it. But (laughs) there's the thing, isn't there, that that pressure involved if you suffer from premature ejaculation i imagine it's going to trigger you off even faster than sex with an actual person is because that's it's quite an yes. intense you can also swap the entry ring at the bottom of it to make it uh, really tight or a bit more loose so basically you can use this toy to gradually build up the amount of sensation that you can cope with before ejaculating and it's fully washable as well. You can use it more than once. Okay, so that's you can, quite you interesting. Can bunk into it, rinse it out, and then I think you put a special powder in it to kind of dry it out and freshen it before your next use. Okay, that's that's a novel tip. I mean, what else is there though that you can advise someone? I mean, if you are one of these people, it doesn't sound like this guy is, but if you're one of these people, who literally, you know, you know, fifteen seconds into intercourse, it's all over. What can you do to get yourself out of that? Uh, if they're using condoms, there are some that are impregnated with a, a numbing agent called benzocaine. Oh, yes, we've previously yeah, discussed we've, I that. I think we've yeah. discussed those before. And also, I mean, generally using condoms can... Uh, I know there are ones that are very uh, super sensitive and all the rest, but it's an extra layer of material, isn't it, between you and your partner? So that's going to help, I guess, reduce sensitivity a bit. Yes, although I think if they've been seeing each other for a really long time, if he suddenly introduces condoms to their partnership, then his other half might be a little bit concerned about why that might be and if he's been dicking around elsewhere another simple thing that he can do is just masturbate with lubricant at home because that will make the sensation of his hand feel uh, more smooth and slippery and, and more like penetrative sex so that might be a good way of a good way of practicing he can also look into a practice called edging now it's important that he looks into edging and not edge play Edge play is sex involving weapons and knives. (laughs) Put the samurai swords down for now. We're not Uh talking about edge play. We're talking about edging, which is the process of a man or a woman stopping just before you ejaculate. Yes, and training yourself in your spare time so that you can last longer. You're sighing. 
It does sound. It I'd be frustrated intense, with that. Is it? what I'd is what I'd feel. Some I'm sure it's pleasurable it, as well. You can, it can be frustrating at first, but um, I've had guys tell me that over time, it does actually lead to a more prolonged sense of orgasmic pleasure or, or really, really intense climaxes yeah, yeah, yeah. as well. So I get that, it doesn't but it's, just help you last longer. It's it can just help kind of, things. It's feel a bit like snacking too. little and often, though, isn't it? Like sometimes you just want a burger. Of course, we're talking about penetrative sex here as well, and 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 maybe it's maybe one way that he can help to prolong the sexual experience with, with his partner when she gets back after five days is just to delay penetration for a bit, do other things, have a sensual massage together, experiment. Or I mean, actually acknowledge, you know, if you've been in a long-term relationship and you can have an honest conversation, and it's happened a few times, and maybe she's frustrated with it as much as you are, actually acknowledge. Look, we all know what's going to happen here. I'm going to last three minutes. Why don't we just quickly have a quickie and then do something a bit more romantic afterwards? That is also a great idea. And I think some men feel like women are going to be offended if they come really quickly. Not necessarily so. It's quite flattering if you're uh, so much of a turn-on to somebody and your body and your sensuality and your your presence is, is making someone that excited that they can't last. Although it can become a source of frustration if it's happening every single time that you see somebody. So it's definitely worth them conversing about and working on together. Well, I think we've thoroughly dealt with that one. Alex, if people have a future question of sex for the show, how can they get in touch? They can go to our website, which is modernman.co.uk and fill in the feedback form. They certainly can. And that website is also the place to leave us some feedback, buy us a beer or subscribe to the show. If you use Apple, we are at itunes.com slash M-A-N-N. Please leave us a review there. It really helps get the word out. SEH Pat from South Africa has done that. He says, The Modern Man is one of the highlights of my podcast week, along with, wait for it, 99% Invisible, The Illusionist, and This American Life. Uh, it's the podcast equivalent of saying we are one of the great novels ever written uh, but thank you very much uh, very very kind of you uh, you are now officially our ambassador for South Africa uh, our theme tune is by Django Django from their debut album and this is Kate Tempest's new single Europe is Lost it's out now I've been Ollie Mann the producer Matt Hill and we'll see you next Tuesday Europe is lost America lost London lost still we are clamouring victory all that is meaningless rules we have learnt nothing from history the people are dead in their lifetimes dazed in the shine of the streets but look how the traffic's still moving systems too slick to stop working business is good and there's bands every night in the pubs and there's two for one drinks in the clubs and we scrubbed up well washed off the work and the stress and now all we want some excess better yet a night to remember that we'll soon forget all of the blood that was bled for these cities to grow all of the bodies that fell the roots that